This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, reviews director at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Marie Giuliano discusses her new book, French Women Don't Get Facelifts. Then PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon gives us an inside look at the politics of Sherlock Holmes' fandom. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So what's on the nonfiction list this week? Well, debuting at number one on our hardcover nonfiction list is Lisa Lillian's The Hungry Girl Diet. She's the author of previous bestseller, Hungry Girl 200 to the Max. In this book, she features large portions, but a lot of protein, fruits, and vegetables, and lower carbs. And then there's Ariana Huffington's Thrive, which comes in at number two. We reviewed it saying, Media mogul Huffington lays out steps to creating a lifestyle where success is measured not by money and power, but something more meaningful. And last, but certainly not least, former President Jimmy Carter's A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power, which comes in at number three. And President Carter challenges world leaders and citizens to end discrimination and violence against women and girls and takes aim at those who distort religious teachings to keep men in power and subjugate women. An interesting mix yes, of indeed. titles. When the fiction list, James Patterson hits number one, as usual. Uh, this time it's NYPD Red number two, co-authored by Marshall Karp. This series focuses on NYPD Red, which is a task force that handles high-profile crimes. Um, it's a Patterson thriller. If that's the sort of thing you like, then you like it. Uh, Debbie Maycomber's Blossom Street Brides is at number three. This is the 11th Blossom Street novel, uh, which is set in a Seattle neighborhood community with many of the characteristics of a small town. So fans of small town romances who like this sort of thing where everybody knows your name and everybody's up in your business will appreciate this community. And in this installment, three women face very different challenges related to love and marriage. So it's uh, it's pretty reliable that uh, McComber and Patterson will both hit the fiction bestseller list. Um, they have a ton of fans who know that these authors will deliver. Yes, beloved. Absolutely. I'm Louisa Romolino. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Marie Giuliano will dish about the secrets to aging audaciously. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Marie Giuliano on the line. Her new book is French Women Don't Get Facelifts, The Secret of Aging with Style and Attitude. Marie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Louisa and Rose. I'm delighted to be with you. So tell us a little bit about your book. What made you want to write this, uh, this particular book about aging? 
Well, actually, I should say I didn't want to write it. <laughs> um, I thought I was finished with the French Woman series, with you know, which was a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, <clears throat> since I have uh, readers from all over the world, uh, that was a recurring question. And living in New York and working with women my age or older, um, especially in business circle, I was kind of uh, stunned by um, the distress and the concern and um, uh, the fear of of American women. And then since I lived between New York and Paris, whenever I was in Paris, I didn't have that feeling at all, you know, with my friends my age or older. And so I started doing my little uh, unofficial marketing and asking questions, and it became clear that the the way I looked at aging was similar to my most of my French women friends, whereas in America, in New York particularly, which is a youth culture and, and uh, obsessed by mostly because what the media <laughs> does to us, mm-hmm. uh, with looking young and staying young, and which, you know, for us French is, uh, of course, nobody likes to get old, but um, because we maybe we have an identity and a, and a history of, um, and, and a, a great motto saying, life starts at 50, la vie commence à 50 ans, we just don't look at it the same way, and we're much more still much more all those things are changing um, uh, close with families and you know the grandmothers and the aunts we, we they have a respect that sometimes I, I, I didn't see here you know it's here like and the invisibility that women in New York talk about now I mean you don't even want to read magazines sometimes I'm at the dentist or at the hairdresser and I read a magazine and I read letters of women who said you know I'm 30 and um, I'm invisible and I'm old and I thought, what? <laughs> so it's 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 a huge cultural difference. Well, they also they encourage young girls to get oh, Botox yes. no, and I things. Oh yes, I was in California in January when I came back from my tour in uh, New Zealand, Australia, and I was in uh, one of the very few bookstores left in Marine County when where I had been invited for each of my book, and I had a lot of fans apparently. And it was a one o'clock, uh, you know, during lunchtime. And I thought, there wouldn't be anybody there. I mean, one o'clock. And there were actually a huge amount of people. And um, it was very good, women and men. And uh, at the end, a woman came to me and said to me, um, you know, I am about your age, and um, I might have a few wrinkles more than you because uh, I've been a sun worshiper. But she said, you really gave me uh, peace and confidence because I go to um, to a class, some kind of gym or yoga class, I, I forgot what it was, and she said, there are 12 of us and I'm the only one who hasn't had a facelift. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, I mean, it's striking. And then, so when you walk in certain parts of certain cities, um, especially in New York and L.A., and, you know, all you see is uh, is um, this kind of, uh, I mean, I call them masks, or, you know, it, I don't want to pass judgment. It, it's every woman has to decide what is what is her holistic approach to aging, but if this is their answer, it's, it's, uh, it's just not good, because it doesn't look, it, it just... I mean, I um, sometimes I even want to laugh, you know, because it's it's like some kind of uh, 
um, ghost kind of uh, feature, you know, because the, the the look is and and when you know the person, it's even worse because you see the the kind of uh, emptiness in the eyes and then the the. You know, it, it looks like these women are almost afraid to laugh now because maybe they're afraid things will crack up or something. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's it's it's. I found it very um, touching in a sad way that that they let themselves, um, you know, convinced to that. Now I'm not saying that uh, French women don't do that. Obviously, there are some, but we're not in the top ten. Uh, and and the ones who do it obviously are mostly um, at this point, you know, actresses and TV people who, or any 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 woman who because of her job has to do what she has to do, you know. Generally speaking, it's it's a last resort for a French woman, you know, and we will tried all the creams and all the exercises and all those little tricks, that, I, I tips I talk about in in my book to just fool ourselves maybe but you know it helps us deal with it and um and then after a while you you realize that um you know there's so many more much more important things as you go into what i believe is the better part of your life after 50 that that the wrinkles is we i mean uh, way down you know i know i have much more wrinkles now than even five years ago and uh, you know it seems like every year it goes faster but but to me they are like way down on the list you know they don't bother me they don't you know of course you know i'd rather not have them but on the other hand it's like who cares you know i'm i am uh, alive i am in great shape i am energetic i do a lot of things and um, uh, I enjoy what I do and what where I go and who I meet and uh, so the wrinkles is like uh, you know at the end of the day gravity exists for all of us so no matter what you do I mean it's like uh, temporary and we were wondering do you do you have any kind of statistics about the rate of plastic surgery in France compared to the US and is is your title literally true yeah, well, the title is, uh, you know, it's, it's like French women don't get fat. It's, it's, uh, it, it kind of uh, contains a, a wing. Uh, of course, they have, they have French women who do get fat. Of course, they have some French women who do get facelifts. But actually, I talk, um, I was there in the spring, and, and the book, ironically, is going to be, which I never thought it would be, would be translated in French and will come out in French this fall. Um, so I did uh, get in touch with people in, in those circles to ask and to get statistics. And statistics are totally, like too often, like surveys, you know, uh, very misleading and ambiguous. Because actually, someone told me that some U.S. fashion writer or some kind of journalist wrote a book uh, recommending a plastic surgeon. And now he's so famous that he has mostly foreign customers and so famous that apparently he opened an office in London where he has a lot, a lot of uh, British ladies going to him, you know. So so are those are those numbers counting and them or excluding them? Uh, it's, it's very iffy. And then, uh, you know, it's the payment system because, of course, in France, like I guess most, in most countries, it's not reimbursed. So 
people are paying cash and these kind of surgeons, uh, I'm not I'm not sure they are the most honest about declaring what they do at uh, at the rate they charge. So it's um, statistics are I would not call them reliable. So if we are number 14, I don't know what it means. Maybe it means number nine, or maybe it means number 19. Uh, but the fact is, I mean, you see it in France. You know, I mean, I, whether it's in Paris or. I travel all over France. Uh, you don't see many women with plastic surgery. I mean, no. Can you speak to Italy or Spain? Is it similar to France? Yeah, Italy is actually uh, way be above France. And, and actually, it's ironical because right now my book is uh, coming out in uh, Italian. And although I have no, no say, you know, uh, as, um, for the title, uh, I have to agree, but um, but if I don't agree, too bad, you know. But I have to <laughs> fight for them to put um, the subtitle in uh, because they wouldn't change the title. And the title had no facelift. The title said something like, French women are beautiful. And I said, you know, this is not what this book is about. I mean, I mean we've been bashed enough. Don't say we're beautiful. We don't think we're beautiful, more beautiful than any, you know, they're beautiful and, and less beautiful women all over the world. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand because, you know, we, we, we met uh, the publisher staff, we met uh, about this title and we met and this is how it is perceived. And then I happen to have enough friends, uh, including some uh, sociologists and psychologists friends who are Italian, and they explained to me that, which, which I, I sort of thought of, but I really couldn't prove it, but they said to me, you know, we uh, Italian women, we've always been um, uh, sort of intimidated by you French. We are so, and it has to be because of, in Italy, you know, there's so many little villages and little towns. It's very conservative, very traditional, and they move very, very slowly, like, you know, to accept, like, uh, homosexuality. I mean, I mentor young women, and I was, like, shocked that a 30-year-old woman today in the world has such, you know, backward uh, reactions. Well, they said, well, it's the same about beauty. You know, we always look at the French and... Um and uh, we we don't feel that we uh, we look as beautiful as you because you know once we have children we become mama and if you look and you visit and it's true when you visit Italy and you go to villages and town you know it's manja manja and usually women in their 40 um, can be quite um, heavy compared to the French woman who will really uh, pay attention and um, which is another kind of pressure but nevertheless she will be in much better shape whether she has three kids or five kids compared to an Italian woman. So in the end they kept the title and they put the subtitle and this is as as well as as I could do. And and it's coming out in Germany and Holland as well and I noticed that nobody wants to use the the word facelift you know which is interesting and and actually as i explained in in the book um it was my my agent's uh, idea um personally my my title would have been what it was the subtitle the secret of aging with style and attitude because i believe that there is one strong difference between france and most cultures it's attitude and uh, the only uh, country I could uh, 
say is close to that kind of attitude is um, and and um, and um, aspects of aging and looking at aging and and uh, dealing with aging is Japan. Huh. Uh, Japan has a lot of uh, uh, similar analogies with France, whether it's uh, aesthetics or gastronomy or culture, and certainly about aging. We have a very, very similar uh, way of approaching it. So what's the secret? How does one age with style? Well, it's, it's uh, as I said, it's a mindset. You know, it's, it's kind of a, uh, not... not um, not a formula that one size fits all. It's it's like every woman has to look at herself and um, and have the honesty to look at herself realistically. And I, I think that's where we French are very sometimes we are being perceived as you know arrogant or aggressive. But it's not at all like that. It, it's that we are not. We just don't like to go around the bush. We're very clear and we're very you know. We look at her and say, Hey, Mireille, you're getting old. Like, what can you do? You know. And so in every phase of your life, in a few years, you have to. But especially when you hit forty and fifty, you have to look at yourself and say, Well, maybe I should. There are a few things I could do differently, you know, less in the sun, uh, uh, different haircuts, uh, do more exercise, eat, drink less, uh, eat less sweets, or change my my um, diet, or um, lots of things, you know, from from the outside uh, and from the, for the inside. And um, to me, uh, you know, real beauty, and it sounds like cliche, but it comes from the inside. I think no matter, and some, something that we can relate to in France, too, when I see men, you know, making compliments or looking at a woman who is old and, and still looking at her, is the fact that, um, it, you know, each of us has something to offer. You just have to find it and to emphasize it. And it might require a bit of work, but not that much, you know. You don't need tons of makeup when you're old. You don't need to uh, go out with purple or uh, carrot-colored hair uh, to to be, you know, noticed, because you'll certainly be noticed for the wrong reason. But you can do little things um, that really can take, you know, five years or ten years off of yourself. And when I went to Australia recently, I learned a lot about how I mean, I think there's great hope for the next generation, maybe not mine, but uh, because the treatments, uh, the creams and, and the treatments are going so um, so fast with R&D, um, you know, recently, because in a way, it's not that we're aging, it's that we're oxidizing, and you know, you know all the things about antioxidants and food and all that, and it does matter, it does make a big difference. But the trend in, in treatment is in the next five, ten years will be about skin tightening. And um, as one uh, dermatologist in, in Sydney said to me, there won't be any scalpel necessary. I said, oh, no. She said, no, because, you know, the laser is not good enough. We're going to go through electrical energy. And I said, what is that? And she said, well, it's something like ultrasound energy, in, you know, in the deeper layers to restore the collagen fibers. Because, because in the end, especially in your face, it's the collagen that makes you, you know, you... Um, your skin uh, less tight and you um, well all over your body but uh, you know obviously our skin is uh, in the face is what people see most 
and and then she said about um, about cream it's the same thing you know uh, SPF is not enough it's not a hundred percent effective I said no not really she said no we need something that um, you know uh, DNA repair enzymes like peptides like retinol and things that I don't even know about but you know it sounded really encouraging that there will, there will be alternatives for women uh, so that they don't rush so fast and and then become obsessed because obviously uh, no matter what um, what you do to your face wrinkles will come back you know the minute it's done you start aging again We've been talking with Mireille Giuliano. You can find her book, French Women Don't Get Facelifts, in stores right now. Mireille, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon takes us into the den of the Baker Street Irregulars. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louise Romolino. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Senior Reviews editor Peter Cannon is here to tell us about some recent rifts among fans of Sherlock Holmes. Hi, Peter. Hello, Rose. Hello, Louisa. Very nice to have you here. So so what's going on? It sounds like there's been a, a little bit of a storm in recent days. Well, it's more like recent months, Rose. Mm -hmm. Last year, Leslie Klinger, who's the compiler of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes, brought suit against the Conan Doyle estate, saying that Sherlock Holmes was in the public domain. Now, the Conan Doyle estate uh, has argued that Holmes very much remains a trademark, and you can't just use the character without paying for the privilege. What is it, a hundred years puts it into the public domain? Well, it may be more like 70. Most of the Sherlock Holmes stories in the U.S. are in the public domain because they were published before 1923. But I think there are a handful that were written in the later 20s that are still uh, under copyright. Anyway, I recently, that is uh, a couple of months ago, attended the Baker Street Irregular dinner that's held every year in New York. And I also attended uh, another Baker Street Irregular dinner the night before that is, in effect, a splinter group. The splinter group is headed by John Lullenberg, a distinguished Holmes scholar, uh, who happens to be the U.S. representative of the Conan Doyle estate. Now, as I understand it, about 10 years ago, he had kind of a falling out with the leader of the Baker Street Irregulars and decided to have his own dinner on another night. And this year, there were 32 of us who gathered at a place called the Coffee House in midtown Manhattan and went through the usual rituals of the BSI, you know, toast to the uh, detective and the doctor and, and the woman and, and all, the, all the rest and the, uh, the, the tongue-in-cheek uh, chats and, <laughs> and arguments about the canon. The following night, I attended the regular BSI dinner held at the Yale Club. There were probably 165 guests, and uh, you know, much bigger affair. Again, the, the same routine. 
Now, one of those honored at the BSI dinner was Leslie Klinger. He got a special award for his efforts to bring Sherlock Holmes into the public domain. <laughs> so, so there's a real division here. It's a, it's a matter of money and of principles. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, now, some of the people who were at the smaller dinner, I was believed to see turned up at the other dinner. <laughs> I was afraid if uh, you know, the head of the BSI learned I'd been at the rival dinner, I might not be treated so kindly. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a jolly group. The, the highlight was a mock debate between two sets of lawyers uh, over whether to change their constitution and bylaws. And when I say bylaws, that's B-U-Y laws that has to do with, you know, buying uh, the liquid refreshment. Oh. <laughs> and this, this is actually the 80th anniversary of the Baker Street Regulars as an organization. In 1934, they met in New York. And it was, oh, another aspect, uh, this has traditionally been an all-male uh, event. And it's only in relatively recent years that they allowed uh, women in. They had their own organization for a while, I think it still exists, called the Adventuresses of Sherlock Holmes. But to get back to the debate over the bylaws, whether to change them or keep them the same, uh, it was all good frivolous fun, and the uh, head of the organization ruled in the end to keep the status quo. <laughs> and what was the menu? Was it Holmesian? You know, it wasn't particularly Holmesian. They, they didn't try to sort of... Uh, plug into that side of the, you know, the culinary homes. But at each uh, place setting was a big stack of material of pamphlets, flyers, ads, uh, science society publications, all related to Sherlock Holmes. There's a, a traveling exhibit right now of all sorts of Holmesiana started in Portland, Oregon. I think it's in Cincinnati, Ohio at the moment. I mean, they have material from, you know, there have been any number of uh, adaptations of Holmes to the screen, both TV and uh, on the big screen, uh, which reminds everyone that there's big money involved still, that people like the filmmakers are paying money you know, for the rights to, to make these sure. Holmes movies and TV shows. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, dozens and dozens of of these, you know, self-published. Yeah, and it crosses items. all ages. Yes, yes. Now, I, it was mostly older folks. Uh, you know, it's kind of expensive <laughs> to to attend this. Uh, but one of the items was uh, actually a, a letter from a ten-year-old boy that had been sent to a. Uh, home Science Society asking how he could join, said, you know, my mom just gave me the complete Sherlock Holmes and asking, you know, these kind of amusing, naive questions of, that you might expect from a nine-year-old boy. So the interesting thing, you know, the, the appeal still holds. Oh, sure. That's uh, about the age that I was when I read the complete Sherlock Holmes. Right, right. So despite all the competition from Harry Potter and all the other series that are big today, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes, I think, is still winning over the younger fans. Well, sleuthing is sleuthing. Do you think the fan base is larger in the States than it is in England? I, just because the U.S. is a larger country, uh, it, it's certainly as strong here as in the U.K. Interestingly, where it, uh, Holmes is very popular is Japan. And a special award went to a gentleman 
who was attending something like his 20th consecutive BSI dinner, and he lives in Tokyo, hmm. and they, they, they gave him a, a special investiture. This is a ritual where uh, a BSI member is given a name that's taken from the canon. Hmm. Now, they'd long exhausted all the Japanese names <laughs> in the canon because there's so many... Because they're not very many. Well, there, you know, there are a few, but you know, there are tons of Japanese fans, I, I, I understand. I mean, they have a number of their own science societies, so he... He's like Baron something rather grunner, like, <laughs> like, like a German uh, aristocrat. <laughs> so, uh, as you can tell, I mean, the spirit's pretty lighthearted, mm-hmm. you know, at, at this uh, dinner. and No I, costumes, no period costumes. No, no period costumes. And if I may say from a professional standpoint, I actually sat next to a woman who turned out to be a freelance writer. Her specialty is wine and food. She lives in Verona, Italy, and uh, when she heard I was uh, PW editor, she said, gee, can I do some work for you? And um, the upshot was uh, I commissioned her to do a, a profile of uh, Andrea Camilleri, hmm. uh, Italy's uh, perhaps top crime writer who lives, lives in Rome. Uh, so, you know, you never know <laughs> who you're going to meet at uh, these, these occasions, but yeah, clearly, everyone there, besides being great Holmes fans, are you know smart, educated people who are you know talented in you know, lots of different uh, areas and aren't by any means your 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 classic nerd. So, how does one wangle an invitation to one of these dinners? Ah, that's the question. I, in the old days, I think you know if you wanted to go and pay the money, you could come. Now I understand it's very exclusive, and there are a lot of dinners that take place in the same period uh, of people who you know don't make the cut for the, the big dinner. Fortunately, in the last year, I've become friendly with Leslie S. Klinger, the compiler of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes. In fact, I have it right here. One of the items uh, that was uh, being given away was a monograph of his called HPL Consulting Detective, hmm. which is about the connections between Sherlock Holmes and uh, my favorite author, H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, so, in, so, in short, my Lovecraft connection through Holmes essentially led to my being uh, included in this year's dinner. So, Peter, do you think if this is resolved that um, there'll still be two dinners? Do you think the Splinter Group will continue? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the Splinter Group will continue. John Lullenberg actually stepped down as the head and someone else to, took over. As I say, there are any number of other dinners going on at the same time anyway. I, my sense is maybe 10 years uh, on, you know, feelings aren't as strong as they went, once were. Um, but it will be interesting to see what the court rules in the end. Uh, Klinger did win a judgment in his favor, but then the Conan Doyle state appealed, and it's uh, still up in the air. I, I should say, you know, people have been publishing Sherlock Holmes pastiches for a long time, and a lot of them without the permission of the estate. I myself am one, I, I confess. <laughs> and at the time, Otto Penzler, the mystery maven, was a representative of the uh, Conan Doyle estate in America. And this was in the early 80s. And when I realized, gee, I had to th- go through the estate, he took a look and said, 
just go ahead and publish it. <laughs> now, don't worry about it. Now, granted, this was a, you know, a small press. We're talking about a few hundred copies. There's no big money involved. And uh, everything went smoothly. And, um, you know, I, I you know, was feeling, feeling a little nervous at the time that I was doing something naughty, but <laughs> I've gotten over that. <laughs> but, you know, where there's big money involved, I mean, there have been a number of... Uh, pastiches authorized by the estate. There was one a couple of years ago. Of course, I can't think of the, the name offhand, the, the, the title, but it was by a best-selling British author of, of, a, of a children's series. Um, you know, had the stamp approved by the Conan Doyle estate. Um, you know, I can understand their desire to keep some sort of control at, at, at this point. But I, I, my guess is it's a losing battle that over time, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes will go into the public domain and there won't be anyone, you know, trying to fight that. Belong to all of us. Yes, as he already does <laughs> at, at some level. Well, Peter, thank you so much. We'll definitely come back to you for an update once that lawsuit is decided and everything settles out. Okay, thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louise Romolino. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 